Part Three, Chapter Two of Passing. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Passing by Nella Larson. Part Three, Chapter Two. But it did matter. It mattered more than anything had ever mattered before. What bitterness! That the one fear, the one uncertainty that she had felt, Brian's ache to go somewhere else, should have dwindled to a childish triviality, and with it the quality of the courage and resolution with which she had met it. From the visions and dangers which she now perceived she shrank away. For them she had no remedy or courage. Desperately she tried to shut out the knowledge from which had risen this turmoil which she had no power to moderate or still within her, and half succeeded. For, she reasoned, what was there, what had there been, to show that she was even half correct in her tormenting notion? Nothing. She had seen nothing, heard nothing. She had no facts or proofs. She was only making herself unutterably wretched by an unfounded suspicion. It had been a case of looking for trouble and finding it in good measure. Merely that. With this self-assurance that she had no real knowledge, she redoubled her efforts to drive out of her mind the distressing thought of faiths broken and trusts betrayed which every mental vision of Clare, of Brian, brought with them. She could not, would not, go again through the tearing agony that lay just behind her. She must, she told herself, be fair. In all their married life she had had no slightest cause to suspect her husband of any infidelity, of any serious flirtation even. If, and she doubted it, he had had his hours of outside erratic conduct, they were unknown to her. Why begin now to assume them? And on nothing more concrete than an idea that had leapt into her mind, because he had told her that he had invited a friend, a friend of hers, to a party in his own house. And at a time when she had been, it was likely, more asleep than awake. How could she, without anything done or said, or left undone or unsaid, so easily believe him guilty? How be so ready to renounce all confidence in the worth of their life together? And if, perchance, there were some small something—well, what could it mean? Nothing. There were the boys. There was John Bellew. The thought of these three gave her some slight relief. But she did not look the future in the face. She wanted to feel nothing, to think nothing simply to believe that it was all silly invention on her part. Yet she could not. Not quite. Christmas, with its unreality, its hectic rush, its false gaiety, came and went. Irene was thankful for the confused unrest of the season, its irksomeness, its crowds, its inane and insincere repetitions of genialities, pushed between her and the contemplation of her growing unhappiness. She was thankful, too, for the continued absence of Clare, who, John Bellew having returned from a long stay in Canada, had withdrawn to the other life of hers, remote and inaccessible. But beating against the walled prison of Irene's thoughts was the shunned fancy that, though absent, Clare Kendry was still present, that she was close. Brian, too, had withdrawn. The house contained his outward self and his belongings. He came and went with his usual noiseless irregularity. He sat across from her at table, he slept in his room next to hers at night, but he was remote and inaccessible. No use pretending that he was happy, that things were the same as they always had been. He wasn't, and they weren't. However, she assured herself, it needn't necessarily be because of anything that involved Clare. 
It was, it must be, another manifestation of the old longing. But she did wish it were spring, March, so that Clare would be sailing out of her life and Brian's, Though she had come almost to believe that there was nothing but generous friendship between those two, she was very tired of Clare Kendry. She wanted to be free of her, and of her furtive comings and goings. If something would only happen, something that would make John Bellew decide on an earlier departure, or that would remove Clare. Anything, she didn't care what. Not even if it were that Clare's Marjorie were ill or dying. Not even if Bellew should discover— She drew a quick, sharp breath and for a long time she sat staring down at the hands in her lap. Strange! She had not before realized how easily she could put Clare out of her life. She had only to tell John Bellew that his wife—no, not that. But if he should somehow learn of these Harlem visits— Why should she hesitate? Why spare Clare? But she shrank away from the idea of telling that man, Clare Kendry's white husband, anything that would lead him to suspect that his wife was a negro. Nor could she write it, or telephone it, or tell it to someone else who would tell him. She was caught between two allegiances, different yet the same. Herself, her race. Race! The thing that bound and suffocated her. Whatever step she took, or if she took none at all, something would be crushed a person, or the race, Clare, herself, or the race. Or, it might be, all three. Nothing, she imagined, was ever more completely sardonic. Sitting alone in the quiet living-room in the pleasant firelight, Irene Redfield wished, for the first time in her life, that she had not been born a negro. For the first time she suffered and rebelled because she was unable to disregard the burden of race. It was, she cried silently, enough to suffer as a woman, an individual, on one's own account, without having to suffer for the race as well. It was a brutality, and undeserved. Surely no other people so cursed as Ham's dark children. Nevertheless, her weakness, her shrinking, her own inability to compass the thing, did not prevent her from wishing fervently that in some way with which she had no concern, John Bellew would discover— not that his wife had a touch of the tar-brush, Irene didn't want that, but that she was spending all the time that he was out of the city in black Harlem. Only that. It would be enough to rid her forever of Clare Kendry. End of chapter 2